Welcome. This is our embodiment education series, class number one, build better bone. Thank you for being here. And Trina, will you start for us? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much, Allison. Let me go ahead. I'm going to share my screen. So um, we'll talk a little bit about bones. We are working together today on um, with Condi Yoga School, obviously, and Allison on um, building better bones. And I just wanted to take a moment to really thank Allison and thank all of you crew for having me here. You know, Allison's um, Wednesday night classes were just the joy of my life when I lived in Fairfax. So thank you so much for having me, Allison. And thank you all for being so interested in kind of this idea of the cross-section between Western medicine and um, biology and movement and movement science, which we'll talk a little bit about what that is. So a little bit about me, I am a doctorate of physical therapy. I've been practicing close to um, 17 years. Um, I love in equal measure science and movement. And I was overjoyed to find that there was something called movement science, which is essentially this hybrid between biology and physics. <laughs> and from those two sciences, we really can start to make some good sense about movement and bone building and muscle, all of the things that we're going to talk about during our time together. So um, during the pandemic, I kind of closed my practice doors and started an online education program, uh, equal parts movement practice and education called Mindset and Movements. And really our goals, I have some of our goals up here. So improve movement science awareness. Movement science is like a science and medicine that doesn't get conveyed often or enough, I think. Um, creating some orthopedic preventative practices, diminishing pun diminish punishing movement practices and beliefs. So I hope we can talk about some of these um, qualities or all of these qualities during our time together. And this is me as a young gymnast. I was about 11 years old here. Um, so I've just always been moving, moving. So some of the objectives during our time together today is we're going to look at exploring bone and bone building through the lens of movement science. So this in no way is 100% of the picture of how bone builds. But when we ask ourselves, like, how bone is building under the steam of our own movement, this is the lens that we want to start to think about and apply. And we're going to talk about this concept of bioplasticity, which is when you think about plastic in the body, think about neuroplastic, not like hard plastic, but plastic when we're talking about biological tissues means deformation. It means change ability. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll look at the unique characteristics that make bone bone. And those characteristics are wonderfully sort of um, developed for us to build bone through movement and to change the shape of our bone with our movement. And then we'll explore how bone remodels, becomes denser in relationship to that movement that we um, expose ourselves to, and also how bone is going to change across our lifespan. So when we think about bone, you know, think about, or any of the tissues that we'll talk about, I want us to start to think about all of the cells in our body, like this amazing rainforest, sort of being this, this total connection, um, no differentiation between different tissues. So 
bone, relies on nerve, relies on blood flow, relies on muscle, you know, just like how this rainforest, all the different elements of the animals rely on the plants, rely on the water, rely on the temperature, the soil. It's the same in our physical bodies. Everything sort of relies on everything else to exist, to coexist, to be co-created. And when we talk about the concept of bioplasticity, Again, I think neuroplasticity has really sort of become almost like normal for us to communicate about. But truthfully, we want to start to think about this concept that every cell, not just our neurons, but also our muscle, also our bone, also our skin cells are changing all of the time in relationship, in response to both the internal and the external stimuli that we're really exposing them to. And that stimuli, it might be physical, it also might be cognitive, it might be psychological. The way that we think and our beliefs about movement, they really matter, they really make a difference. Um, and so you gently working around these different concepts is helpful long term in working with our bone. So why are we starting with bone? I mean, I think bone is a great place to start because we're sort of in this epidemic of just what I call like tertiary care to bone, meaning we tend not to intervene in bone in any meaningful um, preventative way. A lot of times in orthopedic medicine, uh, what we'll say to folks is, yes, you have the beginning of this bone pathology. Let's watch it and see what develops. Right. So um, instead of starting to intervene at earlier stages, like we do with teeth, like we do with our blood vessels, you know, you would never go to the dentist and just go in when your teeth are falling out. <laughs> we tend to do that with our bone. Um, so I really love that bone has this huge impact from our lifestyle. And it's the perfect example in my mind of bioplasticity. This is a joint replacement. So firstly, when we first start to kind of think about bone, we're going to talk a little bit about the biology of bone. Um, I really think that talking and thinking about the biology of tissue, we kind of go back in time to like basic biology 101 or basic science from high school. And it's really helpful to start to think about, oh yeah, like this is a functional way of looking at this these basic concepts. So bone protects our organs, helps to support the whole of our structure. Um, it creates this continuous supply of new blood cells and also marrow, right? And also immune cells, which help to differentiate and help, help us with our immune response. It is the place, a place where we store minerals and it's also the mechanical basis for all our movement. In addition to being the mechanical basis for movement, so sort of those areas where muscle can insert around and pull on to create motion, we also have to think like that's bi-directional. So also movement carves and affects bony tissue through that process. So when we talk about animal tissue, there's really four basic types. We're going to look today at connective tissue. Bone is a type of connective tissue. We're also going to talk together next time we meet on Wednesday about muscle. And then when we meet on um, next week uh, for pain, we're going to talk a little bit about nervous tissue. So these are just the basic types of animal tissue. And so again, just reminding ourselves the function of connective tissue is really to convey structural support, maybe for storage, maybe for communication between tissues, has this very these very unique properties, protection of organs, things like that. And we can look, if we look at this kind of chart that I made of different connective tissue types, 
Connective tissue can be everything, you know, very solid like bone, getting less and less solid, more elastic, more flexible, all the way down to lymph and blood, which is fluid, obviously. So we're all just looking at these special cells that have a special unique function. And we're going to talk about the unique functions of bone today, too. So just these particular cells and this particular matrix. And when we talk about the matrix or like the surrounding tissue around these specialized cells that bone has, that matrix is really hard, right? We know that. And we know that calcium's a part of it. We know that protein's a part of it. And there's this other um, sort of compound phosphate. And, and the, the combination of this unique matrix, sometimes we'll call it hydroxyapatite uh, with respect to bone, it's that adult heart bone that we think of. That is the matrix that helps to, that bone creates and that helps to give bone its really unique uh, qualities. Bone, which we're going to look at, is super, super rich in nerve and blood. Not all connective tissue is, right? Like cartilage doesn't have any nerve or blood supply. And so bone in, in that high nerve and blood supply, it's highly repairable. Okay, really capable of modifying. And the way that it learns and the way that it grows is through repair processes, similar to muscle when we look at muscle. So within bone, we can find different types of cells, and we're really going to focus on osteocyte, osteoblast, osteoclast today. So just for like really uh, easy sort of way of looking at this is the osteoblast cells will form bony matrix. The osteoclast cells will reabsorb or break them down. And then the osteocyte, think of the osteocyte, which is the main cell in bone as kind of the conductor, the conductor telling the osteoblast or the osteoclast what to do, kind of communicating those messages. So the osteocytes have this unique function, you guys, where they sort of listen. They listen to our movements. They listen to the challenges across the surfaces of bone. And through that listening process, through that reception, they communicate via chemicals different messages to the other support cells, to the osteoblasts and the osteoclasts. So they're listening to how we move and how we load. And this is really an important part of how movement is used or can be used to stimulate bone growth or how it can be used to stimulate bone reabsorption, osteoclast activity. So the osteocytes are kind of acting as the conductors. They're acting as these little sense. Just think of instead of mechanoreceptors, like sense receptors as their interconnected network to sort of de detect all the pressures and loads that we are offering to them and thereby helping bone adapt. So bone is adapting, it's doing its darn best all the time to change in response to how we are using it. And this is a huge point I think that's missing from a lot of um, movement science education from a lot of orthopedic presentation, we kind of tend to leave everything in the hands of genetics. And genetics tend to be a small portion of things, but really we want to kind of start to focus on how am I asking my bone tissue to behave? What messages am I really um, giving it? It's a really important question, kind of an esoteric question. So the main worker cells that the osteocytes will help to give messages to are these osteoblasts, which are going to be creating new bone, new matrix, and then these osteoclasts, which sort of help to tear down bone. Now, it may seem like, why do we want cells that tear down bone? 
right? Why, why might that help? And if we just grow ahead a little bit, we can start to look at how bone remodeling or bone repair really works. So through different mechanical processes, through loading, through running, through walking, through weightlifting, through posture, we start to create a little bit of teardown into our bone. This is really similar to what happens at muscle if you're familiar with muscle. And so the osteocytes will receive information about this kind of cracking or this sort of fissuring, and they're going to stimulate these osteoclasts, these bone breakdown materials to come in to help take away that bony crack material. Okay. So that bone reabsorption is a really important process of how bone stays healthy. I'm going to go back in time if I can. Oops. There we go. So bone is cracked and it may be not even injured, but it could be injured, but usually it's just cracked through normal use. And when that happens, then that starts to sort of set off this whole bone repair process. Around the parts of the bone where muscle inserts, we actually have kind of thickened bone. We call it tubercles or tuberosity. And it's where that tendon or muscle inserts into the bone that gently tugs on the tissue. So bone is constantly, constantly remodeling through these small fissures these small cracks that just occur through our normal daily life, normal daily movement. They're not big enough to yield, you know, huge uh, pain and, and complete breaks. They're just like these little small irritants. And then through that process, our bone starts to initiate this beautiful, starts to orchestrate this beautiful response. So class will come in, the osteocytes will go, uh-oh, there's been a little crack. We've got to come in and repair this tissue. And then off after the clast removes some of that broken down tissue, then the osteoblasts will come in and start to lay down more new bony matrix to start to build bone up. So bone is really built through compression. It's always, always requires challenge to build, similar to muscle in that way. We have a couple different types of bone and it's not that important for this process, but I just wanted to mention it because you will see different bone types. We have compact bone and you'll see when you look at compact bone, it looks very um, um, solid. And when you look at spongy bone or trabecular cancellous bone, it has these like air pockets in it. The spongy bone is great. Usually it's at the heads of the long bones and it's wonderful for keeping bone a little lighter weight. If our whole skeleton was compact bone, um, we probably wouldn't be able to move it around. We wouldn't be able to lug it around. It would be too heavy for us. So here you can kind of see like the anatomy of a long bone. This kind of looks like a humerus, say, of the arm. And um, this would be like the spongy bone up close with these little air pockets, making bone lighter weight, but still structurally sound. And then this area of compact bone. The long bones have these little cavities. And this is where, if you remember, marrow is. And marrow will be the tissue that create, you know, differentiates into different types of blood cells and has um, different uh, origins for some of our immune responses, some of the cells and some of the um, uh, mediators of our immune response. 
So this is um, a, an animal model, and this is looking at bone atrophy with disuse. So this poor mouse, I believe, wasn't allowed to move. And you can see that the cancellus or trabecular, the spongy bone, has really atrophied. Spongy bone, cancellus bone, is impacted much more greatly in disease pathologies like um, osteoporosis when there isn't enough adequate compression or there isn't enough um, of the right kinds of movement to stimulate healthy bone growth, healthy bone maintenance. So bone, when it is underused, it will undergo atrophy, just like in that last picture we looked at. Bone is nourished through compression and, and that's called, it's, so it's anisotropic. And so like, even when people have an incredibly painful pelvic fracture, we'll say, oh, you have to get up and stand and wait there, right? We need compression to help with that remodeling process so the bone can repair itself. And what we see time and time again, if people are on bed rest, bones atrophy, and then repair processes aren't able to unfold. So Compression is an important part of bone health and healing. When force across the bone exceeds its strength capacity, not the muscle strength, but the strength of the bone itself, bone will fatigue and fracture. And we're gonna look at that when we talk about compression fractures in just a little bit. And so this is why protecting your natural spine is so important because taking the skeletal, taking the spinal bones out of neutral spine puts them in a place where they're gonna undergo fatigue more quickly. So I love this image. Um, I showed this before and I totally spaced on one of my favorite people in the whole world's name, Sir David Attenborough. And he's standing next to, I think it's like a dinosaur femur or a dinosaur humerus. And so this dinosaur bone, you can tell it was compressed. Like there were tons of force coming down across it. Look instead at our scapula. The scapula is not a weight-bearing structure and it's almost wafer thin. You can, when you hold them up to light in like a cadaver lab, you can see right through them. You can see into the black uh, background just on the other side of this. This is a bone that doesn't do a lot of compressive work and what arises from it is the rotator cuff. So from looking at this, you get an idea about what this bone is used for small muscles, an origin for small muscles of the rotator cuff, and what this bone is used for. When we were in the cadaver lab, we used to be able to tell what kind of movements or what people engaged in or didn't engage in near the end of their life based on how their bones looked. This is a cartoon of a joint. And so just to remind us all, we have, you know, a main part of bones uh, is, is to create these beautiful areas of articulation where one bone comes together with another. And they sort of marry together inside of this really specialized ligament called the joint capsule. And the ends of these bones are cartilage. And so what I'd love to start to introduce is this concept like how we move these bones really matters in their capacity to withstand fatigue or to build say like osteoarthritis, right? So when we look at this picture, this is, this is what I would call like a neutral alignment for the knee. The knee is a weight-bearing joint. Most Americans reside in this world over here. Weak hips result in this sort of biomechanics where the lateral, the outside aspect of the knee is over-compressed. Recall what compression does to bone. It builds bone, right? So with over-compression, bone will start to grow excessively. When we have excessive bone growth into a joint space, that is osteoarthritis. There's something else going on over here, which is that the cartilage over here is excessively gapped. 
cartilage doesn't have blood supply going to it. And so it's actually losing nutrients and dying off in those moments of, of under compression. So bone growth, excessive growth on one side, cartilage death on the other side ultimately leads to bone growth. Both of these are conditions for accelerated osteoarthritis. And this is why at our spines, this is so crucially important. This is essentially a neutral spinal alignment. And I know, Allison, we're going to practice this more uh, during our movement today, feeling, sensing this. You'll notice that there's this beautiful, gentle S-curve. Um, and in that S-curve, you'll notice that there's curves in two different directions. There's a curve here, kind of going back, and these are called kyphotic curves. This would be the front of the spine. This would be the back. And then there's these curves in the other direction here, and these are called lordotic curves, both are important to protect, to preserve the compression ability of bone. Think about this as sort of like a slinky, okay? And this is like a slinky at its maximum springiness, not compressed, not stretched taut. It's got a lot of beautiful potential energy here. It has a lot of potential resistance to compression. Um, this was a reported uh, research where somebody um, was able to do exercise embracing and change the alignment of the kyphotic curvature of the spine. Um, I don't know exactly what was done, but what I want to point out is that this spine ultimately will be less tolerant to compressive loads than this spine. Okay, because of that hyperkyphosis here. Similarly, if this person had no curves in their spine, like that stretched out slinky, they would also lose their compression ability of their spine. And so it might seem kind of paradoxical, like you just said, Trina, bone really builds under compression. Okay, but the right amount of compression. We're going to see this in bone and muscle and nerve. These tissues love what I call like the Goldilocks experience. They don't like to be over compressed. They don't like to be under compressed. They like just the right amount of compression, compression in the right position. When we take a spine like this and we compress and compress and say maybe we stretch our arms forward, this bone in the front, because of where the plumb line falls of sort of compression will eventually cause fatigue of this bony tissue in the front and these sorts of fatigue in the anterior aspect. This is the front of the spine and that bone will eventually fracture because of that fatigue. So understanding how to protect our spine through our lifespan, how to protect the curves of our spine is really, really important. When we're first born, we're like these little pea pods, right? We just have this kind of primary, our whole spine is sort of flexed like this. And it's not until we start to walk, sorry about all the stuff back here. I loved this image, but I just snagged it off the web. It's not until we start to walk that we actually build these secondary lordotic curves. So muscle is such a crucial part of what protects and preserves our bone position, what protects and preserves the integrity of our joints, right? Without muscle, we drift back here as we age. You guys have all had friends and colleagues that have drifted back over here. So working on extension strength, strength of the muscles on the back of your body, strength of the muscles on the back of the hips is more important as we age than working on strength of the front of the body. And I would argue it's more important throughout our whole lifespan. 
When we talk about muscle, we'll talk about that a little bit. So initially our skeleton is made entirely of cartilage. Young bones are so kind of flexible that they bend a lot of times rather than break. And when they do break, we usually call them green stick fractures, just like a wet piece of wood. They'll break on the opposite side of where the compression happened because they're so darn bendy. Our cartilage will mature into bone, but it will remain at those end caps where we see it near the joints. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that bone decreases in density very rapidly after the first few uh, years after menopause, but it's also highly, highly related to very low body mass index and low muscle mass. Another term for low muscle mass is sarcopenia. Remember osteopenia, it's like sarcopenia. Sorry for kind of the poor image, but this is looking at bone density. So our bone density sort of peaks, just like our strength density peaks around our 20 to 30s. It's no coincidence that those happen together. And then we start to rapidly lose bone density. We start to rapidly lose muscle density as well. And women are more impacted by these changes than men because of hormonal differences, because of our propensity to already have less muscle and bone density than men do anyway. So in summary, bone is a highly active tissue. It is highly vascular, meaning it has great blood supply. It's highly neural. It has a lot of great nerve supply. Bone is remodeling. It's cracking. It's reshaping all of the time. And through that process, bone is learning how to adapt to what we're asking it to do. Part of how bone remodels is related to the sum of the forces it is subject to because it is an isotropic. Our posture is super dynamic, changes over our lifespan, affects how bones are compressed. And I just want to add in here and strength in the back of our body is always more important than strength in the front of our body. Bone health in general is greatly impacted by our movement, by our posture, by the loss of especially the muscle mass on the backside of our body, by hormonal changes. And when we're talking about how we build good bones, we want to first use, I think, biomechanic and biologic principles. If we understand how bone builds, if we understand the interrelatedness between bone and muscle, it's if we understand the relationship between how bone changes with compression, it gets us to buy in more to learning good biomechanics to help preserve our bone and protect our joint surfaces from excessive gapping or excessive osteoarthritis potential. We use extension bias postures and neutral spine alignment to really preserve our spinal bones. And I cannot emphasize this enough, increase muscle mass, increase muscle mass, increase muscle mass, increase muscle mass. Muscle mass improves balance, it improves bone density, it improves joint protection. I've heard from some women that they build muscle easily. I have never heard that from a man. <laughs> so none of us build muscle easily. We need to really uh, just, um, acknowledge that. We'll talk about that more. So I'm going to go ahead and stop my share. Awesome. Thank you. And Trina, I'm, I picked out some, what I think are some gems. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about these. So one of the gems I picked out was like bones are the mechanical basis for movement. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, bones are the site of the origin and also the insertion to muscles. Muscles have to attach in certain ways to the bone in order to generate movement. Without those specific attachment sites, movement wouldn't and couldn't occur. And without those sites being stable enough, movement couldn't occur. Excellent. And I, I love that because I think so often 
one of the questions I hear from students when they're doing any type of movement practice is, what should I feel stretching? Mm. And one of the things we're going to work on during practice is like, can you feel your bones? Can you feel the alignment through the bones? So then that we're actually moving with this anatomical reality of bones being the mechanical basis for movement. Do you have anything you'd add to that? Yeah. I mean, just to encourage that more bone has a tremendous amount in in that neural supply. It has a tremendous amount of sensory information passing through it of sense receptors, mechanoreceptors, interoceptors, and on the connective tissue outside of it, the periosteum. So being able to sense the bones is crucial, especially of the spine. It's crucial for good movement. Excellent. Excellent. I love that because I think one of the challenges is slowing down enough to feel that deeper relationship to your body versus the sensation of stretch or the accomplishment of like, I'm doing the thing. I could not agree more. It's a wholly different felt sense. And, um, I didn't talk about felt sense enough, but I'm, I'm also massively curious about sensation. It's a byproduct of neuroscience, as you guys know, and, um, and sensation and what we pay attention to will grow. So just like Allison speaking to, if you start to pay attention to these quieter, more, um, subtle sensory experiences, your ability to do so will grow. I know when I start with my clients in class, I assume they can't feel neutral and, um, and by the end of the first month, most of them can. So if you can't feel something yet, the other thing I would say is if you can't feel your bones yet, just suggest it and just be patient and just keep asking. And eventually that sensory experience will grow for you. I love it. Um, when I teach natural curves, I'm going to do some natural curve work today. I always tell students, these are not so natural in the beginning, right? You'll make this can't be natural. This is hard. It's weird. It's foreign. Um, And a lot of it has to do with um, our modern postural patterns, especially all the time we spend sitting, which I believe leads to that weakened posterior chain. Would you agree? Yes. I'm nodding my head emphatically. I just said that this morning in my class. Those of you who are in my class this morning, you heard me say that. (laughs) Yes. Leads to a whole host of problems. Great. And then another highlight I plucked out was bone learns and grows through repair processes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So we all really get it because I think it's so valuable. Mm. Yeah, both bone and muscle. We're going to talk about this too with muscle, but both bone and muscle grow in response to challenge. So neither of those tissues grow in a vacuum. So in order to challenge bone, you must compress it. The way that bone is compressed is a couple different ways. One of the ways is through weight bearing. But if we're very light, we have to add other forms, right? I had a couple of times that their force is equal to mass times acceleration. Say your mass is very low (laughs) and the only acceleration you work with is gravity, right? Which is a constant. Then you have to increase your resistance in order to challenge bone, right? So you have to challenge bone and through that challenge, then bone can start to kind of rise to the challenge that you're giving it. And so then it can start to elicit those repair mechanisms and grow. When you look at the attachments of bones, like I was saying, where muscles insert into bone, if you've seen that, there'll be little bony outcroppings and growth because that's where bone has been tugged at, right? People who tend to have larger muscles have easier to palpate, easier to feel larger bones because we've pulled on them. So you have to have a process through which you compress bony tissue in order for it to adapt. Excellent. And kind of piggybacking on that, 
Um, you talked about being in the cadaver lab and being able to guess people's lifestyle based on what the bones looked like. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we would see, you know, if we saw somebody who was kyphotic, who was flexed, if we were with a, um, a cadaver that was in that shape, our instructor, uh, Kim Top, would say, you know, um, so you guys, what do you think? Was this person bed bound or wheelchair bound? Absolutely. The bones would kind of grow into that whole kyphotic curvature, like I showed that pea pod sort of positioning. So it really started to give me some awareness into how bone differentiates so much based on movement. Every single bone that I've ever looked at in a cadaver lab is different from every other bone. There's certainly similarities but everyone is different based on how we move and how we choose to sit. Mm, great. And then um, you didn't share at this time. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to, if you can give us the highlight reel, the last time you presented for the school, I was blown away by that study mm-hmm. about the two movements that were done just a few times a day and how much it impacted the spine. Could you just give us the highlight reel of that study? Yeah, I cut the I cut that out. I remember the first movement. <laughs> Maybe you can remember the second yeah. movement. The first movement was essentially like a modified for people for folks who are yogis, a modified uh, shalambhasana, and um, people practice that day like five times a week um, for you know ten or twelve repetitions. And what they found was that the people that practiced that had better bone density and had diminished fractures. Um, and then there's been a couple different movement studies that have shown the um, flexion uh, changing with with movement. Was there something else that you remembered in particular, Allison? Was there another movement? Yeah, it was this one in a chair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Shalabhasana. But what struck me about that study was how impactful just two movements were. And they weren't hard. They weren't fancy. It didn't take 90 minutes. It didn't require even going to a special place to do the movement. And I guess like when, when you talked about that, what it, it gave me such hope because I think sometimes there's, and I remember you talked about this last time too, there's this fatalism with bones. And especially if we have a family history of um, challenges with a certain, like, for example, in my family, all the women have all these knee issues. Um, And when I started yoga, what actually got me to therapeutics was how much pain I had in my knees, but there can be this fatalism around it. And we can actually do so much to impact our bones. And it doesn't, it doesn't require something big or dramatic or crazy or wild or long or hard, but it does require something you can do regularly to kind of push back against some of the postural habits and tendencies. Yeah. And to communicate at the level of the osteocytes. The mm. osteocytes are listening. <laughs> those, those cells are guiding. They're not, not active. They're not sleeping. They're listening all the time. And how we move is socialized. So you move like your mom moves, like your grandma moves, like your great grandma moves. You know, posture and movement is socialized the same way that language is sort of socialized. So we learn to move like our families. And a lot of what we attribute to genetics is actually socialization, actually socialized movement. So when you start to socialize yourself differently, you start to make different decisions like you did with your yoga practice and like you chose to work through with your therapeutics and you start to do things selectively to nurture your osteocytes in different ways, 
then they'll show up differently. And the osteoclast, the osteoblast will show up differently. It's the same thing with osteoporosis. It's why osteoporosis medication alone doesn't work because it's this total cellular response. Everything kind of has to change. The nerve has to change its communication with the cells. The motor cortex has to change its communication. You have to do something in a novel way to get a different output. Mm, fantastic. That's such a great response. I love this, this, this idea too, that our body's always listening. What are we telling it? Always. <laughs> Good. Those were my questions. Um, anyone else have questions for Trina? Can unmute yourself and just come on out. I have one question about the osteoclast. So so if, if you have osteoporosis, do the osteoclasts take more bone away than they should? Is that what's happening? They're like on overdrive or something? It could be either, Scotty. It could be either that the clasts are too active. It could be that the blasts are not active enough. Active enough. Okay. It, most of the time with osteoporosis, osteoporosis is a complex disease process. It can be a couple of things going on from thyroid issues, parathyroid issues, hormone issues. But one thing's for sure. If you change what Allison and I were just talking about, if you change your motor output and you ask your osteocytes to behave differently, they will. So you avoid flexion. You start giving yourself some more simple spinal information and awareness. Most women that I work with have no awareness of where their spines are and way too much mobility. And so if you start working on those two levels, then your cells will start to transform over time. But, you know, like that whole old adage of like, if you have osteoporosis, go out and walk. You could see that that's not enough. That's simply movement wise. That's not enough information. You know, I don't want to give any medical information right now, but that's that's not getting to the heart of what we're talking about, which is a selective change in your behavior. Less sitting, less flexion, more extension. Okay. Yeah. And Trina, can you define flexion and extension for everyone, too? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, flexion is uh, an extension, our sagittal plane motions. And um, flexion is where the angle of the front of your body becomes smaller. So you can think of it, it's where like your sternum will collapse and move down towards your belly button. Your belly button might drift up towards your sternum. That's flexion. And that gaps are at the back of our spine. It elongates the muscles on the back of our body. And it also gaps the, bo the bones on the back of our body. And then when we move in the other way into extension, we bring, we close down the bones on the back of our body. It's where we open the angle on the front of our body and we move the distance from the sternum away from the pelvis. Yeah, extension, exactly. I see you so guys. <laughs> usually use the terms um, flexion equals forward bend, extension equals back bend or like an extended spine. Like we'll do like Arda Uttanasana, which can have an extended spine. Perfect. Yep, exactly. Good. Just so everyone knows. And the other thing too, is one of, one of the things I always notice in my own practice, as well as when I'm teaching is that when we do a practice that does not have flexion, when we, we kind of like avoid that. Um, it's almost easier. Mm. It's, quite remarkable how much more challenging the practice will be when we don't get that relief of the forward bend mm. that you're working the spine and extension and the legs the whole time. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I say that too, because 
a lot of times the pra- like the practice we're going to do today doesn't look hard. <laughs> it, you know, and, and it doesn't look like maybe some of those poses you're like, oh, but I just really want to fold into Uttanasana right now. And you're not going to. And there's a tension there and a power there and a strength there. And I mention it here and now because you're, there's going to be a little part of your brain that's going to be like, I just want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that voice is really strong mm-hmm. and it is so important to notice it. And you don't always have to ignore it, but it's not always guiding you in the right direction. Sometimes it's guiding you towards hypermobility. Exactly like what you're saying. And through that excessive overuse of different sagittal or other plane movements, then you lose where midline is. You can lose the awareness of that over time. And so that's another reason why that's so important. Like Allison's talking about to let that tension build, think about what you're doing in that moment. You're letting your nervous system remodel back to a new midline. It's a really good point. And the the hard work in this type of practice is that remodeling, retraining, beginning a different conversation with the body versus the one you've always had. So there's a certain amount of um, skill building happening that can be uncomfortable. Um, and I often tell this story. One time I was at a training and it was it was the most poorly organized training I've ever been a part of. Um, but I learned a lot. And because the first three days we did vinyasa practice and the, the, the second three days of this training, we did therapeutics and the three days of vinyasa were like fun. Everyone's flipping around, you know, it's a whole bunch of yoga teachers. So it's like flexibility heyday, you know, doing all the party tricks. And, um, the, the second three days with therapeutics, the vinyasa days, our practices were two or three hours long during therapeutics days, they were an hour and we would all just be like almost sobbing because it was so much harder. It was so much less gratifying for the ego. But I know that after I do those types of practices, like I feel it in my body for the next several days, I just feel lighter. I feel brighter. I feel like I'm more upright. Um, little things that may be kind of, um, talking to me will be easeful and graceful. So again, this is, Um, It's a different type of work than what we've traditionally seen in yoga or movement practices. Any other questions for Trina? I have a question. Yeah. Sarah, Um, what happens uh, to the bony bits that the osteoclasts get rid of? How does does the body get rid of them? That they eat up. Part of the calcium goes back up, cycled into storage. And then part of the phosphate is just released through the ureters and through urine and stuff. So just like everything else, your body just naturally upcycles what it can, recycles where it can, excretes what it doesn't use. (laughs) Phosphates are usually easy to, they're easy come, easy go. Um, So phosphate compounds usually just cycle on out unless you need some in your pH and your blood or things, and then your body will take that up. So it's amazing the way that that just happens, build up, break down, build up, break down there. The, um, if you don't have the substrates for bone, if you don't have enough protein, if you don't have enough calcium, if you're not ingesting enough food, your body cannot build, cannot build muscle, cannot build neuron, cannot repair. So under eating, I don't know, you know, it's a huge issue. Uh, it's a huge issue when it comes to these repair processes. That's the one thing I will say with substrates. You have to have enough substrates on board in order for this process to be ongoing. So so how much protein 
should one aim to eat? Oh, I have no idea. Or consume. I have no idea. I'm not an, I'm not a dietitian. I would consult a dietitian. Oh. I would consult a, a dietitian for those kinds of questions. Um, oh, I'm okay. a legal specialist. I have my own wheelhouse and it's a large enough wheelhouse for me to try to wrap my head around, but I, I couldn't ever pretend to answer that question. I think it's related to body size and all these other things and the amount of bone you want to gain, the amount of muscle you want to gain. Yeah, it's relative. But when I'm building muscle, I increase my calories, always increase my substrates. That's about all I can say about nutrition, you guys. That, that's the beginning and the end of my nutrition knowledge. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> yeah, and on the resources page, I'll link to Condi Yoga School and Mindset Movements, Trina School. And then also um, I have friends who are nutritionists as well as personal trainers and um, Green Door Life. And they're excellent. They've done my um, macronutrient profiles for me and helped immensely with nutrition and also strength building. So you'll see um, their link on the resource page when we get it up to. Um, any other questions for Trina or for me? Otherwise we will take a short presto change out to practice space break and get moving. In terms of props, have two blocks. Again, this will not be a practice where you're like, woohoo, we did a bunch of flowy stuff or stretchy stuff. It's going to be, let's retrain your bones type of practice. So, um, take about, you know, a minute or two to get set up. I'm going to stop this recording and start another one. So you'll see that happening. And I will be leading the practice from my mat, um, to be able to clearly demonstrate what we want to do for the body because the alignment is relatively precise in order to get the type of bone building we want.